0: Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. You are now listening to Breakthrough News. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this the punch out we're following the news all day so you don't have to giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be and yes we are back with you here the 28th of june 2021 very happy to be back with you here on the punch out took a little break but we are now back as always 5 p.m eastern We got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about a fairly significant break in the Julian Assange extradition case, as well as the underlying indictments that have been uh, made against him here in the United States. We're going to talk about the United States bombing Iraq and Syria over the weekend. But before we turn to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with the millions of people in America. Yes, the United States that think communism It's pretty all right. And socialism, too, for that matter. All that we are doing in this moment is claiming what is rightfully ours. We are the workers. We are the workers. We do the work. And we deserve a government that works with and for us. Well, that was the voice of India Walton, the likely new mayor of the city of Buffalo, a black woman, a nurse, and a socialist whose upset victory last week shocked the world. It's an article of faith that the U S is a deeply conservative country and that isn't exactly wrong. There are certainly many tens of millions of conservative people and conservative ideology is certainly quite prominent, but in reality, this obscures the fact that many tens of millions of people are certainly progressive and many fairly radical, at least from the point of view of our current political setup. And certainly that's what we saw in the result in Buffalo in 2020. There was a poll done by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and they poll issues around communism and socialism every year, primarily to set the record straight for anti communists that they aren't actually doing as well as they think they are here in the United States. So in 2020, they found that 40% of people in the United States had a favorable view of socialism, 40% of the country favorable view of socialism last year. Now the polling was done for people who are 16 years of age and above. So I wanted to do some rough calculations to give you a sense not just of the percentages, but the magnitude in terms of the actual millions of people that these percentages would represent. And now just a note here, these are rough numbers. I'm working off the Federal Reserve numbers on the working age population, which actually measures from 15 to 64, and also the census numbers of the number of US citizens 65 and over. But Let's just assume here that the views of 15-year-olds aren't drastically different than their broader age group. So with that proviso that this could be either a under or over count, but just slightly either way, let's continue. So 40% of Americans have a favorable view of socialism. Well, based on our data set, that's roughly 103 million people who have a favorable view of socialism. To give you some sense of scale there, 81 million people voted for Joe Biden last year. 26% 26% of people told the pollsters that they, quote, support the gradual elimination of the capitalist system in favor of a more socialist system. So that's a quarter of the country over the age of 16 that favors the ultimate elimination of capitalism. That's 67 and a half million people. Sixty-seven and a half million people. Say that they support the gradual elimination of the capitalist system in favor of a more socialist system. of people said that they would be willing to vote for a quote-unquote Democratic Socialist candidate for office without any hesitancy. That would translate into 145 million people. Now, 3% of people view the phrase quote-unquote communist as a compliment. Now, percentage-wise, it's pretty small, 3%, right? But it is worth noting this would actually be 7.7 million people who objectively view being a communist as a good thing. I mean, how many of you would have guessed there were almost 8 million communist sympathizers in the U.S.? So summing it all up, the implication here is that roughly 43% of people in the United States over the age of 15 are open to supporting political forces who describe themselves as socialist. That's tens of millions of people as well who ultimately want capitalism eliminated, and that there are nearly 8 million people who feel positively about communism. Now, does that sound like an irredeemably conservative country to you? Now, of course, this can also be seen in a range of other statistics. For instance, 62% of people support a $15 an hour minimum wage. 75% of people support paid medical and family leave for all workers. 72% of people in the so-called battleground congressional districts, which are all supposed to be you know, more conservative, support Congress passing legislation to crack down on wage theft. I could go on and on, but you get the point here. There are far more people supporting progressive ideas than is reflected in the national political discourse which ultimately speaks to the most important point. Almost all the most powerful institutions in America are committed to making the U.S. not seem very progressive at all. In fact, the very nature of our political system with gerrymandering and the Senate and so on gives a massively outsized role institutionally for conservative views, far greater than their actual support in the population. It's also seen in the media narratives. It's a media article of faith that quote-unquote black voters are the most conservative part of the Democratic coalition. I mean, it seemed like it was being mentioned 85 times a day on all network news during the Democratic primaries as a reason why Bernie Sanders could never win. But think about this. 89% of black people support a $15 an hour minimum wage. 87% support free college for all. 84% support paid family leave for all workers. In the South Carolina Democratic primary, so-called crucible of conservative black voters, 53% of the Democratic primary voters said the economic system in the U.S. needs a, quote, complete overhaul, end quote. Now, you can, I'm sure, make all sorts of conclusions here, but is the main takeaway really that black voters are very conservative? Yet, that's the narrative. The real issue is not that America is too conservative to change or whatever, but that there is no real political force articulating an agenda for fundamental change in the national political conversation. There's also no adjacent media to push the reality of what's happening that reaches the level in terms of scale of the Democratic and Republican adjacent media that rules the ruse and promotes these heavily problematic narratives. And it leaves many of us feeling isolated, alone, embattled, constantly feeling somehow we're struggling against odds too great to overcome and actually changing things. And trust me, that's what the elite in this country wants you to think. But right now, with all the challenges we've already listed, almost half the country is willing to support some form of socialism. So for those holding radical views, you aren't alone. You aren't isolated. Now, you certainly may be embattled, but at the end of the day, as the numbers show, if you can organize, got a pretty good shot to win I said 13 years ago was a mistake to give the president the authority to um, go to war if in fact he couldn't get inspectors into Iraq to stop uh, what thought to be uh, the attempt to get a nuclear weapon Uh, it was a mistake and I acknowledge that And that was now President Joe Biden during the Democratic primary elections last year when he was attempting to become president. But despite noting that the Iraq war was a mistake under his aegis, the U.S. is not only still occupying Iraq, but over the weekend actually escalated the conflict in Iraq and Syria and really in a subsidiary way towards Iran. For the second time now in his presidency, and it hasn't been that long, remember he just came in in January, President Biden authorized airstrikes against units in the Iraqi military that they claim are behind attacks on U.S. assets in Iraq. Now, it's important to note, these are units of the Iraqi military, a part of the government of Iraq that the U.S. government claims to support. Now, in the U.S. media, they are called, quote unquote, Iranian-backed militias. And that's the same term that is used by the U.S. government, and it plays a big role in obscuring what is going on. Now, according to The New York Times, quote, Pentagon planners have been gathering information for weeks on the sites and networks that use them. American officials said on Sunday, Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin, III and General Mark A. Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, briefed Mr. Biden on attack options early last week and Mr. Biden approved striking the three targets, end quote. The Times also noted, quote, pressure has been building for weeks from Democrats and Republicans in Congress and from some of Mr. Biden's top advisors and commanders to retaliate against the threat posed by the drones to American diplomats and the twenty five hundred U.S. troops in Iraq who are training and advising Iraqi forces. At least five times since April, the Iranian-backed militias, and I'm still quoting from the New York Times here, have used small, explosive-laden drones that dive-bomb and crash into their targets in late-night attacks on Iraqi bases, including those used by the CIA and U.S. special operations units, according to American officials. So far, no Americans have been hurt in the attacks, but officials worry about the precision of the drones, also called unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs, end quote. Now, you can add to the drone issue a number of small-scale mortar attacks that have caused very limited damage and a handful of deaths, mainly of contractors. But first, let's just note how the Times details, quote, no Americans have been hurt in the attacks, end quote. Now, this is crucial. It's very crucial to understanding the broader context here. The U.S. forces are in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government to fight ISIS. In January of last year, the U.S. murdered Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, head of one of the groups they struck this weekend, who was a high-level Iraqi military figure. After that assassination, the Iraqi parliament voted for the U.S. to leave. And since that time, the Iraqi government has been conducting negotiations with the U.S. about a withdrawal schedule. But the U.S. is refusing to leave and working all of its proxies inside the country to make sure that they can stay. So in retaliation, some groups, and it's actually not at all clear it's the ones the U.S. claim are doing it, have launched low-level attacks, clearly not as a major military play, but as a form of pressure on the U.S. to leave the country. What is really happening then is fairly obvious. These U.S. strikes are not related directly to the strikes on U.S. assets in the region, but they are related to the broader politics of the region. The U.S. is trying to send a clear message. If you ally in any way with forces we deem to be aligned with Iran, or if you are a force that we deem to be allied with Iran, we can and will strike you and potentially kill you at any time, regardless of what you actually did, even if you are a high-ranking member of a government we consider to be sovereign. And these attacks by the U.S. over the weekend come after weeks of pressure, as mentioned, from hardline warmongers in Congress and the administration, when the Secretary of State of the United States is meeting with officials of the Iran-hating Israeli government, that was happening over the weekend, a few days after a major military parade of the Popular Mobilization Forces, the umbrella for the so-called Iran-backed militias, by the way, that parade was attended by the Prime Minister of Iraq, and It's also happening not too long after Iran elected a new president who's taken a stronger position as it regards relationship with the United States, in particular, uh, around the nuclear program. So when you put all that together, it's obvious that the U.S. strikes in Iraq and Syria are, as mentioned above, designed to send a message that the U.S. is the top dog in the Middle East. Accept it or be destroyed. (laughs) What would you say to, for example, the, um, you know, the parent of, of someone whose son is, is out serving the US military and he says, you know what, you, you've put up something that someone had an incentive to put out. It shows a US soldier laughing at, at people dying. You know, that gives the impression, has given the impression to millions of people around the world that US soldiers are inhuman people. Actually, they're not. My son isn't. How dare you? What would you say to that? Yeah, we do get a lot of that. Um, but remember, The people in Baghdad, the people in Iraq, the people in Afghanistan, they don't need to see the video. Uh, They see it every day. So it's not going to change their opinion, it's not going to change their perception. That's what they see every day. Um, It will change the perception and opinion uh, of the people who are paying for it all. Um, And that's our hope. That was Julian Assange, the imprisoned former publisher of WikiLeaks, speaking in 2010 about the motivations for WikiLeaks and leaking classified U.S. government documents. Assange is currently facing extradition to the United States from the United Kingdom on espionage and computer hacking charges, which, while initially rejected, is winding its way through an appeals process. Last week, though, there was an important development in the case against Assange, where a major witness admitted to Icelandic media that he actually fabricated evidence that was used in the Assange extradition trial as part of the broader U.S. government claims against the publisher. Sigurdur Ingi Thordeson a convicted pedophile and fraudster recruited by the U.S. government to inform one Assange told Icelandic media outlet Stundin that he not only fabricated evidence against Assange, but he embezzled $50,000 from WikiLeaks and, after becoming a DOJ informant, continued to engage in a broad range of criminal activity, something the U.S. government appears to have kept Iceland in the dark about. The fabricated evidence in question is a claim that Thordeson was ordered by Assange and WikiLeaks to illegally hack computer systems in Iceland and the seeming role of the allegations in the indictment against Assange is to buttress the case against him that claims he similarly ordered Chelsea Manning to illegally hack a U.S. government computer. Now, the U.S. has no evidence of that either. Now, they have a chat log that they claim speaks to this, but there's actually no indication that the person on the other end of those chats was indeed Julian Assange. So, lacking evidence, they are seeking to show a pattern. Stunden reports, quote, In fact, Thordeson now admits to Stunden that Assange never asked him to hack or access phone recordings of MPs. His new claim is that he had in fact received some files from a third party who claimed to have recorded MPs and had offered to share them with Assange without having any idea what they actually contained. He claims he never checked the contents of the files or even if they contained audio recordings as his third party source suggested. He further admits the claim that Assange had instructed or asked him to access computers in order to find any such recordings is false, end quote. And to prove his new claims, he allowed Stunden to see a range of chat logs between himself and others, including WikiLeaks, and taking both that and their own investigation into account. The Icelandic media source notes that, quote, cannot find any evidence that Sturnden was ever instructed to make those requests by anyone inside of WikiLeaks, end quote. And It actually gets a bit deeper here. In 2011, Thordeson started to collaborate with a guy named Sabu, who's a fairly high-level hacker who at that time was actually an FBI informant and conducting his activities with their approval. Thordeson asked Sabu and his team to hack some Icelandic government websites, which they did. Now, why would the U.S. government allow this guy to hack the government of an ally on behalf of someone so shady? Well, The minister of the interior of Iceland at the time told Stunden, quote, they were trying to use things here in Iceland and use people in our country to spin a web, a cobweb that would catch Julian Assange, end quote. He told the media outlet that, quote, when the FBI first contacted Icelandic authorities on June 20th, 2011, it was to warn Iceland of an imminent and grave threat of intrusion against government computers. Hmm. Now, the implication here is that they let the attacks go forward because they figured it would help them trick Iceland, a country known for valuing digital security and privacy, into helping them in the broader attempt to manufacture a case against Assange. The interior minister, who was mainly in the dark, started connecting the dots of various U.S. actions happening in Iceland and determined that, quote, it was obvious that the intention was to lay a trap in Iceland for Assange and other staff members of WikiLeaks, end quote. Which makes sense. ISN had been home to a number of prominent WikiLeaks supporters, and like I said, had a legal regime friendly to those who value transparency and global affairs. So they tricked the government into giving them more access to the country as part of laying a trap for Assange in friendly territory, so to speak. But as we now know, it seems the so-called trap was fake and the evidence fabricated. Nonetheless, it was used against Assange and accepted as true by the UK extradition court. It does, however, raise serious questions about the overall case and the methods by which it was conducted. At the very least, it seriously undermines the argument that Assange had a quote-unquote pattern of pushing sources to commit crimes, as the U.S. government claims. It also shows how far the U.S. was willing to go to attack a news organization. They were willing to break laws, violate the state sovereignty of allies, as well as rely on convicted sex offenders and fraudsters in elaborate entrapment attempts. It's a chilling example of how far U.S. imperialist forces will go. To hide the truth From coming out That's the punch out for today We're with you Monday through Friday 5pm here in New York East Coast Standard Time 2pm in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time And 9pm GMT And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at Patreon.com slash Breakthrough News. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.